Hello and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast put on by three educators at uh, Classical School in Austin, Texas, Veritas Academy. Uh, following in the vein of unhelpful titles, uh, we have Graham Donaldson today speaking. Hey! And I could try and pretend to know what he's talking about, but I have no idea. But before we get to that, uh, Graham already said, hey, we also have here AJ Hannenberg. That's this guy. And me, Thomas Magby. But uh, yeah, Graham is going to be leading this, ep- this episode today. So that's right. Thomas, you have your, you got your summer beard going. I do have a summer beard going right now. Um, this is only the second time I've grown out my facial hair and I'm okay with it. Really? Did you do it like in junior high or something? No. Were you an early (laughs) beard? No. Uh, it was, it was a couple years ago. So it was after college even. Um, yeah. Not, you weren't adventurous in college. Like I had dreadlocks for a good chunk of it. Clean shaven. Yeah. All the time. Clean shaven. And then I was, I was, was that? I had glasses in college. Your eyes got better? They did. What? I kid you not. What? So I wore glasses in high school, and then when I started university, um, one day I was just sitting in the in a big lecture hall, and I had my glasses on. I was looking at the board, and it was real fuzzy, <laughs> and I took my glasses off, and it was clear, and I just never wore them again. That's cool. That's all? That's I've my, never, my that's eyesight never heard was that. very, very, very slightly bad, but I still had glasses for it, and so my eyes corrected themselves. Or I got bit by a radioactive spider. Yeah. I think and, you're a superhero, uh, <laughs> yeah. as a matter of I fact. I became super strong, too. I feel like that's, <laughs> like, if you get bit by a radioactive spider, you got really high hopes for what's going to happen, and it's just like, now nah, your eyes are slightly better than they were. <laughs> and you lost all your hair. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, yes, so today we are talking about um, symbolism and when English teachers are full of garbage or when they're actually uh, have something real to say. And we're going to be using Romeo and Juliet as a book to illustrate this. So I feel like one of the big criticisms that people have of English class or English teachers is that I hear this all the time that English teachers, we just kind of make stuff up. Mm. Um, oh yeah, the boots are a symbol of the journey. And so every time you see boots, it's a journey. Mm. So just write that in your essay, kid. Um, and then, which also makes then the grading really frustrating because it's all subjective. Yeah, right? it's that, all subjective. Isn't that the accusation? Or, or and then what the students say is, oh well, all you need to do is just say like X is a metaphor for Y, and your teacher is going to be happy with you, and then you'll get your mark, and then you can go. Like, and I, I have gotten some fun X is yeah. a metaphor for Y. <laughs> so there are so the anyway, but so there are symbols and metaphors do exist. And they happen in books, yeah. but you can't just make it up, and uh, and teachers can't just make it up. So we're going to talk a little bit today using an example, or a, a sort of a big, long example from Romeo and Juliet, um, to show at least, and I know AJ finds this very contentious, so maybe we'll argue on this podcast. So for a, for a little frame of reference, audience, Graham and I regularly and vehemently disagree about symbolism in stories, and I usually tend towards less license and interpretation and he typically tends towards more um and that's you know it's like a new school of interpretation versus old school and or another way to frame it is aj is is mistaken yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and at, least, I am. at least i have evidence for the things that i think <laughs> that's why we're doing this that's why we're doing this podcast because i've got evidence to show you that i'm not a crazy person Oh, well, yeah. Well, isn't that the kind of thing a crazy person would say? I'm interested to see. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. So, okay. Methinks he doth protest too much. (laughs) Right? I'm worried about this one. Okay. No. So, 
um, you can't just, let's start sort of really basic simple. So when you talk about symbols, symbols are not just made up things. It's not like we just took a bucket of nouns and then took a bucket of, of ideas and just drew you know, one bucket from the noun and it's like lobster and one bucket <laughs> from the idea and it's like loneliness. And so every time a lobster shows up, you, it's loneliness. Like that's not how symbolism works. I feel like works. lobster would more like, might like, more likely be selfishness because they drag mm. each other down back into the pot. Shellfishness? Oh, oh nice. Wow. Just Gross. Oh, that one. It's, bad. Oh, it's like a... Oh. They're greedy like, and they have claws. Like yeah. that would actually be a pretty good symbol. But yeah. anyway, um, so there needs to be a logic to symbols. Like they need to make logical sense so like a light shining in the darkness like a little candle in an empty house you know could in the context of the story symbolize hope or whatever you know those sorts of virtue or something yeah so there needs to be logic um but um but what we're talking about is is um big overarching motifs and how to and how to use them in uh in in a reading of a large novel or a play. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at Romeo and Juliet pretty much all of act 1 up to the famous balcony scene because there's 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 this one big motif that goes from act 1 all the way to the balcony scene and then once Romeo and Juliet are together and married um it kind of disappears. This motif doesn't exist anymore. Um, motif for those who are listening is a little, it's a little bit different than a symbol. Motif is just something that appears again and again. That's right. And so something that is reoccurring over and over and over is what gives an, uh, an interpreter license to be able to say that the smaller things play into the motif. So what I sort of what we're building up to is there's this scene where, um, or the, the theme do you mean? So like something that happens again and again can give a hint towards the theme. Yeah. if Romeo is, say, always talking about Canada, mm-hmm. right? And he's like, Canada this and Canada that. Well, then Canada is probably important to the theme somehow. Yeah. Um, so the sort of the thing that I'm building up to is there's this, there's this interaction, almost like a throwaway conversation between Lord Capulet, Juliet's dad, and I think it's Paris at the party where Romeo meets Juliet. And they're just talking back and forth. And... Uh, Capulet makes some sort of reference to knowing how old somebody is because he remembers that they were uh, celebrating Pentecost. And um, Shakespeare needed to, so for the plot, Shakespeare needed to pick something to, to base this time reference on. He could have picked anything. He could have picked Christmas. He could have picked All Saints Day. He could have picked uh, Michael Mass. He could have picked Easter. And he picks Pentecost. And um, if the motif that I'm going to be talking about is not there, I think that the English teacher has no ability to make any sort of significance with talking about Pentecost. But because there's this huge motif of religious conversion, having Pentecost in this scene is, is, is a lot more significant, and you can build an argument around it. Anyway, so let's go back to sort of the beginning of the story. When we first meet Romeo, um, he's all mopey and... Um, and Romeo's dad, Montague, goes up to Romeo's cousin, Benvolio, and he's like, hey, my mopey, dopey son is one day going to inherit my awesome fortune, but I don't want him to because he's a big mope. <laughs> Can you go see what's wrong with him? And Benvolio is like, sure. And it's dawn, and he sees Romeo. Oh, before he sees Romeo, the, the dad says, yeah, Romeo only goes out at night, and he cries his eyes out at nighttime, and when he, uh, like the morning dew, and then when he comes home, he locks himself in his room and creates a, quote, artificial night. 
and I haven't seen Romeo for a number of days because he goes out at night. So he's the dude that's putting towels under his door yeah, and like exactly hanging blankets over his windows yeah. and he's got like a black light and that's it. Yeah. And he's just lying in his room. And then when it's nighttime, he, you know, Romeo like bursts back into like the darkened woods to cry his eyes out. I bet his room smells awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, you know, he's that kid. Um, he's, he's a mopey teenager. Um, and so, but the, the phrase is he creates for himself an artificial night. So Benvolio finds Romeo and Romeo tries to escape from Benvolio back into the woods. And, um, and Benvolio sort of talks to him. And then you guys know the story. Romeo says that he is in love. Um, and he is in love with, anybody remember? Uh, Juliet? No. Oh, uh, Rosaline. Yeah, Rosaline. he's in love with Rosaline. Um, and... And Thomas, do you remember what? Do you remember from your reading of Romeo and Juliet in high school why Rosaline doesn't love Romeo back? Mm, no. Because his room smells real bad? Well, that's probably true. It should be. No, she's taken some sort of vow of chastity. She's decided that she doesn't want to marry ever. Now, whether she's a nun or not, we don't really know. Um, but Romeo says that she'll not be hit with Cupid's arrow. She hath Diane's wit. So the goddess Diana... Um, uh, AJ, you're, you're the ancient um, Diana teacher. is the, as far as I know, the same as Ar Artemis. Yep. And so Artemis is the hunter goddess. She is ever young and ever chaste. Mm -hmm. And all of her maidens are chaste. Mm -hmm. And if you all of a sudden become not chaste, you are no longer one of her maidens. Mm -hmm. and, and she gets real grumpy when dudes spy on her bathing. She's had or some, chase her. Or chase her. They usually end up. Uh, torn apart by dogs mm -hmm. or turned into something nasty. Or, or shoot them or something. Yeah, it's it's a real bad news if you go after Artemis. You just leave the girl alone. That's right. And um, she, do you know what other heavenly body she's associated with? I, I know only because Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. The moon. So she's associated with the moon. Uh, and so, all right, so Romeo only goes out at night, and he's in love with this girl who never wants to get married, and he associates her with the moon. So she's this goddess Diana, goddess of the moon. So Romeo is sort of this night dweller in love with the moon. Um, and um, and she's sort of taken this, this vow of chastity, um, and, and Romeo is sort of real mopey about it. Benvolio gives him the advice of, well, hey, um, that sucks. Um, why don't we well the, the sort of the conversation ends and then we move to a different scene 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 two in act one we have capulet talking to paris and capulet is juliet's dad and he says to paris hey i want you to marry my daughter but i want you to win her heart and capulet says this one little line uh about juliet and he says um uh, he says, the earth has swallowed up all my hope but she. So he's, he's lost all of his other children. She is the hopeful lady of my earth, is what he says. And then uh, he has this big old speech where he talks about one, uh, Paris winning Juliet. He makes these references that Juliet is like this heavenly body. The hopeful lady of my earth uh, is presumably like some kind of, if he is the earth and she's the hopeful lady, she's some sort of star, she's some sort of meteor, she's some sort of beautiful heavenly body that is circling me, circling my earth. I, um, um, uh, she's in my, my scope, my sphere. Um, I, what I'm doing is I'm just showing you all of these little dropped um, examples of this motif of heavenly bodies, of light, of darkness, um, uh, and um, so that when you want to say, so you have sort of a, a firm foundation to stand on when you want to make claims about 
about symbols or about um, um, metaphors. And if you remember back, way back when we talked about the spheres, this wouldn't have gone unnoticed by his his populace at the time. That's right. right. They they knew the idea of the spheres. This was their whole model for the universe. They they would have known, like they, the audience would have caught all of these little hints. It mm-hmm. wouldn't have gone unnoticed. So, um, okay. So then the party goes forward and this little serving man takes out the invitations to give to all the party dwellers, except the little serving man doesn't know how to read. Um, so he's going to do a real bad job of delivering the invitations. So he is walking through town, looking at these invitations. He's like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And he bumps into Benvolio and Romeo, who are having this conversation about Romeo being real bummed that Rosaline won't love him because she's taking vow of chastity. She's the goddess of the moon. Um, she's like Artemis, Diana. And uh, sh- uh, when dudes chase her, she uh, runs away from them, which is what Romeo is feeling. Uh, and remember, Romeo only goes out at night. Um, he's like this sort of religious adherent to the moon. He's in love with it, if you want to um, put it that way. So this little dude shows up, and he's like, hey, can you guys read? And, they, and then Benvolio and Romeo do that very noble thing. When you are encountered somebody who doesn't know how to read, they make fun of him. <laughs> <laughs> and they make fun of him who doesn't know how to read. And then they read it and realize that Rosaline is going to be at this party. And Benvolio is like, all right, buddy, we're going to go to this party. You're going to see Rosaline. I'm going to show you that your swan is actually a crow uh, because there's going to be lots of beautiful ladies there and you are going to fall in love with somebody else. This sounds like standard teenage drama yep. dressed up in nice words. Because like, I can think of so many instances in high school where it's like, I love this girl, but she doesn't love me back. And your friend's like, bro, she's no good for you. <laughs> what we're going to do, we're going to go to this party. You're going to see that she's the girl. worst. And you're going to feel like there are plenty of other that's fish right. in the sea, buddy. And like, that just sounds... I, I know that this conversation has happened in... You know, so many times. Yeah, that's true. Over and over. So then Romeo, oh, sorry, maybe you're going to say something? No. Oh, then Romeo responds to Benvolio's phrase, where Benvolio is like, yeah, we're gonna, I'm going to find you a different girl. Romeo says, when the devout religion of mine eye maintains such falsehood, then turn tears to fires, and those who often drowned could never, dry, never die, transparent heretics be burnt for liars. One fairer than my love? The all-seeing sun never saw her match since first the world began. So Romeo says, um, if I fall in love with somebody else, I'm a bad religious observer and I should be burnt as a heretic, is what Romeo says. He says, if I see another, if I fall in love with somebody else, then my goddess, Rosaline, a.k.a., or that he sort of christened as Diana, mm-hmm. uh, this, this goddess of chastity that won't love him back. He says, if I love anybody else, then I should be burnt. Mm-hmm. I should be burnt alive as a heretic. Um, okay. Um, then we move on to the actual party scene. And, um, uh, well, before the party scene, um, no, they, we'll skip Queen Mab. So they get to the party scene, um, and Romeo sees Juliet. Um, and does anybody remember the famous phrase that Romeo says when he sees Juliet for the first time? Yowzers. Yeah, that's it. In iambic pentameter. <laughs> um, something about the sun? Well, that's, that's a little bit later. So he sees Juliet and he says, oh, she doth teach the torches to burn bright. Yeah. Um, it seems she hangs upon the cheek of night like a rich jewel in an Ethiop's ear, etc., uh, etc. Et so he sees Juliet and he says, she is like Fire. She is glowing so beautiful that she is teaching these torches to burn bright. Um, and then he goes and he takes her hand and 
uh, when he takes her hand, he plays this little game where when he grabs her hand, he pretends like he's like, he, he grabs her hand. He's like, ooh, I'm sorry, baby. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> uh, did, I, did I scare you? Um, oh and uh, <laughs> I'm just a little forward there. I'm Seriously. just a pilgrim yeah. coming forward to this beautiful holy shrine. Does he want a holy kiss? Did he call, call her a holy shrine? He does. Well, let me just actually. I think it's worth. I feel like that's kind of forward, and I don't know if that would fly right. in bars today. Let's. I'm, I'm actually going to go through the whole thing because this is sort of the 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 center of this metaphor. So he says, Romeo t- takes her hand. If I profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine, her. The gentle sin is this. My lips, two blushing pilgrims, ready stand to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. He's like, oh, if I squeeze your hand too hard, if I kind of startled you, I got two pilgrims who are ready to, who are ready to smooth all of this over. I can kiss it better, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Juliet says, good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much. Which, which mannerly devotion shows in this? For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. So Juliet says, no, no, you don't need to feel like you besmirched this shrine by touching it because saints, me, have hands too. And, and our, what our hands are doing, the hand to hand, is the kiss because is is it's the holy palmer's kiss. The pun on um, the word palmer because a palmer is a pilgrim, but it's also the palm of your hand. So she's like, I'm cool with just holding your hand. Uh, and she tosses some wordplay so yeah, she shows tosses, she's smart. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. And then says, Romeo says, have not saints' lips and holy palmers too? <laughs> Julia says, I, pilgrim, lips they must use in prayer. <laughs> so and then Romeo there. says, but she's trapped now because she just said that hand-to-hand is holy palmers' kiss with praying. And he says, oh, then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do. They pray, grant thou, lest faith turn to despair. I, as this pilgrim, have come to this shrine. Let me pray by kissing you, or my faith will be turned to despair. Oh, girl, I'll be so sad. Oh, girl, I'll be so sad, I'll lose my faith. <laughs> Juliet says, saints do not move, though grants for prayer's sake. She says, well, saints don't kiss pilgrims. Pilgrims kiss saints. So I'm going to stand right here. <laughs> and then Romeo says, then move not while my prayer's effect I take. Thus from my lips by yours my sin is purged. And he kisses her. Whoa! Yep. And this, they like just met? They just met. Wow. And then she says, he must be yep. attractive. Yes. So he says, thus from my lips by yours my sin is purged, you know, uh, evoking this pilgrimage uh, by going and kissing the shrine or kissing the saint that you, you have sort of done penance for your sins. To which Julie responds, then have my lips that sin that they mm-hmm. have took? So she's like, am I sin now? Have I taken your sin? And Romeo says, oh, sin from thy lips? Oh, trespass sweetly urged, give me my sin again. Yeah. And he kisses her. Like, oh, kiss, I'll take it back. Her. Yeah. And then you he kisses her, and then the nurse steps in, and she's like, uh, Juliet, your mom wants to talk to you. Because uh, the nurse has been seeing what's going on. Anyway, so we have this scene where Romeo is coming as this religious pilgrim to Juliet, and he's kissing her, um, and, he, and, and he's, he, he's kissing her hands uh, and her lips. Um, but a couple scenes ago, he had just said, if I change um, religions, I should be burnt as a heretic. Um, he sees Juliet, and what does he call her? A holy shrine? Uh, a torch. He yeah. says she teaches the torch to be bright. So um, Romeo is going to be burnt as a heretic because he's going to be enveloped with the flames of Juliet. Yeah. Um, okay, moving a little bit along, um, just to see the full motif, we get the famous balcony scene, and when Romeo sees Juliet on the balcony... Well, we'll oh. pause. I mean, if he's, if he's a pilgrim and she is a holy shrine and a priest, mm-hmm. then... 
it's not maybe it's not just a being burned as a heretic, but a conversion story. That's exactly it. And th- so this is sort of the point that I'm going to come to with the fact that Shakespeare uses in this idle conversation. Well, let's talk about it now. In this idle conversation between um, the Capulet. Capulet and Paris, uh, in that scene where Romeo sees Juliet and they smooch and fall in love, uh, the idle conversation kind of goes like this. Um, um, Capulet's drunk and he's complaining that his feet hurt. Um, and then he says, uh, how long is it now since you and I were last in a mask? He asks his buddy. How long has it been since we've been at a party? And the, and the other guy says, ah, it's been about 30 years. Wow. And Capulet says, what, man? Tis not so much, tis not so much. Tis since the nuptials of Licentio come Pentecost as quickly as it will, some five and 20 years, and then we be masked. He's like, no, it's not 30 years, it's been 25 years, because uh, uh, Licentio got married uh, around Pentecost. Okay, Pentecost, what happens at Pentecost? Fire comes down. And? Uh, they start speaking different languages. Yeah. yeah. Fire comes down, and it's the beginning of the, the early church. church. Yeah. It's the conversion from the world of paganism to the world of Christianity is, is, is a way to think about it. It's the beginning of the church. It's mm-hmm. this new spirit. This new dispensation is coming down. Um, Romeo has seen Juliet. She is burning like a torch. He has been this adherent of the goddess Diana. Um, and he sees her, and uh, he is struck by her and, um, uh, and and goes to her, and he's sort of all consumed by her like fire. And um, so... But it's not a fire that burns him up like he said he would be as a heretic. It's, it's not, not a fire that burns him up as a heretic. It's, it's, it's a fire that, that, that converts him to this new religion of Juliet. Mm-hmm. Um the metaphor continues when he sees Juliet in the balcony, and um, just in case there was sort of, well, the, the final question is, is AJ convinced? Uh-huh. Um, but he sees Juliet coming out of her balcony, and he says, but soft what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon who is already sick and pale with grief. Who's the envious moon? Rosalind. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, uh, when the sun rises, the moon fades away. When Romeo sees Juliet, Rosaline fades away. Um, this moon who is sick and pale with grief, um, and then Rosaline, um, sorry, Juliet, who is far more fair than she, be not her maid since she is envious. Um, and then he continues on. If you take a pen and go through act one and then all the way up to act two, scene two, and circle every line or every phrase that has to do with Religious conversion, uh, paganism. Uh, later on in the scene, Romeo says that by falling in love with Juliet, he shall be new baptized. Um, she is the angel of the heavens. Um, you will have, uh, your book will just be completely underlined with all of these things. So if somebody wanted to go back to any of these phrases, any of these little symbols, and say, um, um, when Shakespeare uses the term Pentecost, it's significant because it plays into the rest of this motif. I think that that is a convincing reading of Romeo and Juliet. But if you just go and you cherry pick one thing and there's not a surrounding motif or a surrounding body of evidence in the rest of the story to give credence to that. Or really no, yeah, no grounding in the tale. Then I think you're just making something up. So if someone came in and said, oh, well, when Romeo says that uh, Diana should be shot with Cupid's arrows, what they mean by Cupid's arrows is Romeo's good looks. Like, okay, prove it. Like, prove that the rest of the story is 
is uh, giving you license to be able to say that shooting arrows can be a symbol of Romeo's attractiveness. Um, because if you can't do that, then I feel like that student's making, essay... Like or if earlier he'd been combing his hair and they're like, come on, let's go to the party. He's like, hold on, folks. I am stringing my bow. Exactly. Then I, then the arrows theme would be there. Yeah, yep. and, if you ha- and if there was a number of references that uh, that Romeo is the winged cherub, if he you know, can sort of... Uh, if love gives him wings, if he can fly, if... if he, and if, if he's like about, about to go talk to Juliet and he's like... Fellas, pray that I aim true. Yes, pray that my that my words hit their mark or anything like this. Mm-hmm. Then you can go back and you can look at these phrases and you can say, ah, this has symbolic weight. Um, but just by going and picking up and, and finding any, uh, just saying anything, um, then then it's a load of garbage. So this is this is what I feel like separates a good reading or a good teaching mm-hmm. of the book or, or someone who is really trying to understand the story from someone who's just sort of making stuff up to sound, to sound intelligent. Yeah. So AJ, is, okay. this, is this convincing? So a few, a few things. I have thoughts. <laughs> My first thought is that what you've done there is the true work of literature and that, that if I had read that in an essay, I would be proud of my student. And, and that's a convincing reading. And this is what scholarship when it comes to books is. It's a lot of people writing like, hey, I think this reading is the accurate one because of these things that appear in the book and the motifs that they address. And for the record, for anybody who's wondering about instances where it might seem like we've cherry-picked, sometimes there are motifs that don't just stretch throughout that book, but throughout literature sure. as a standard motif, right? So the in Russian literature, like the horse as the working man, right? That's, it's kind of a thing that pops up again and again and again Mm -hmm. and again. Or, uh, in, in painting, they used to have symbols that were widely known because the populace was illiterate and they would use those symbols all the time. And so if it's a reference to something visual that everyone would have known represented one thing or, or another, then you would know exactly who that was. Like Hercules is always carrying a club and a, a pelt, Right. So if you if I as a writer knew that that was visually represented in in art, I could say and he carried his club and pelt and walked down the street, I would immediately make a reference to Hercules, even if it wasn't connected to anything else in the tale. So I think Graham's reading is reasonable when I take when I take issue with readings and pulling of and, and pulling symbols out. It's usually one of two things. First, there isn't enough backlog of evidence or motif to support the reading. And I I think Graham is in the same place with me. Yes. And two, if the whim of the human mind has not been taken into account, right? I think writers are like everybody else. And sometimes they just write stuff down. They don't know why they write it. They don't have to have a reason behind absolutely everything, especially if the book is a long one. And if everything must be completely chock full of meaning, I think you're going to get yourself into trouble, right? But if you can support it with this theme motif that keeps on recurring, I think that that's a completely reasonable reading. But if it's, if it's pulled out because it seems like it might be something and then tortured until you feel like you have something to say, I think maybe you're not taking the whim of writers into account, right? Having written things myself, sometimes I just put stuff in there or, you know, an image pops into my head and I want to convey it and it doesn't necessarily connect to the great history of literature. But isn't that what makes something in concert, like a good piece of literature that's in concert with the canon versus just something that's emanating from the heart, from the head of an individual. Like if you have the ability to, to have 
your story using symbols and metaphors that harken back to other things that is in concert. Like if you if you had a character in your story and he was carrying a club and he was carrying a pelt and, you know, classically minded people would be like, oh, this guy's Hercules. But if you knew nothing about that, like if it was just if you were uneducated into who who Hercules was and you just had him in there um, uh, uh, and he didn't do anything Herculean. I don't know. Like, sure, isn't I, that what separates? I'm not, kind I'm of not like disagreeing with you, bad? and I think a good a good book will perhaps connect to the canon and be artistically unified or have artistic unity. And what that means is that everything in the story contributes to the story. Mm-hmm. But even then, even in a book with artistic unity, there can still be illusions or images that aren't necessarily connected to all of antiquity. And I'm thinking. Uh, the, the same thing is done in the art world. I'm, I'm actually trying, I'm trying to learn about art history right now. And one of the oldest cave paintings we have is layer upon layer of paintings given over hundreds of different years, right? It's not, it's not all made at the same time. And they're funny pictures. One is clearly a male with a bird head. Another is a cow that has been disemboweled and is looking shocked back at his bowels. He's like, oh no. And the most, the most arresting one is what looks like a rhino and I kid you not, the book said, and it has two rows of three dots next to the rhino that doesn't make any sense. Well, if you look at it, the rhino has a raised tail. The two rows of three dots are right next to the raised tail. I have never known anyone to not get that that it is absolutely either a poop or, or a fart or it's poop. One of the two. <laughs> and so we assume just because it is in the art world that it has to have this great meaning when more than likely it was teenagers and they drew a pooping rhino because they were <laughs> bored, right? That's, and, and you can do that. Like, and right. I think the same thing can happen in the, in the mind of a writer. You just put something in because it's fun. And that's what, and I think that is the issue I take with one of the ones that we disagree about a lot. It's the one in Crime and Punishment about Achilles, the helmet of Achilles. Oh, yes. That's the one I was And well, I don't want to get too into it, but I think that the whimsy of the writer has oh, not oh, been taken into account. And I don't ties think... the whole book together. I don't think it connects to anything else in the book. Yeah, definitely one of those two, though. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's where we take issue is when Graham thinks it ties the book together, and I actually see no connection with anything else in the book. But, AJ, but, but really, we have the same requirements for literature. Yeah. A symbol has to have evidence. It has to connect with everything else. And this is, and I think that disagreement, the one about the Achilles helmet symbol in mm-hmm. Crime and Punishment, is like an honest intellectual disagreement that is that it's okay to have, right? I don't think Graham is doing like work in the English world that I can disrespect. Right? I don't think that he's being an idiot. <laughs> Right. I just happen to disagree with his interpretation. Yeah. And that happens all the time. But when a student comes up and he's like, if you guys can disagree, how do you disagree with what well, I think the boots are, you know, representative of his soul? I'm like, well, because it doesn't connect to anything. You're right. just making that up. Except the pun on the word soul and boots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which has been taken yeah. advantage of. Oh, yeah. That, that, that one's in Shakespeare. I'm actually going to talk about it some, you know, next podcast or whatever. So, AJ, do you have thoughts on this specific example that Graham is bringing up? Oh, this specific example, I think, is incredibly well done, and I think he's right. Um, So then a question that always comes up with my students is, did Shakespeare do this on purpose? And I kind of have two answers to that whenever I'm asked. One is, is, yeah, maybe he he probably did. But the other one is, if he didn't do it on purpose... He was so steeped in, right. metaf- in metaphor, in, in the, sort of the symbolic landscape of literature. Like, he is not the first person to think about fire conversion falling, and then going in, falling in love from one person to another as, like, a religious conversion. He's not inventing that. Um, that's, 
you know, that, that sort of steeped through all sort of Plutarchan, Plutarchan love sonnets and all sorts of things. So whether Shakespeare had this at front of mind when he was doing, I can't imagine that he wouldn't. Um, but if this he, one, I, I think it would be difficult to make a case yeah. that he didn't. But if, but if because he it didn't, happens so often, you you can be if you are someone who is so steeped in the sort of the symbolic world of the classical world and of Christian iconography and the the cool blending of those two things that have happened in the Middle Ages, Shakespeare sort of at the end of the Middle Ages, um, then it's just going to be the natural way that you are telling these stories and uh, and are sort of couching your images. Um, um, because um, I mean Shakespeare, all characters have the you know, speak very evocatively. They are evoking images. Um, Benvolio is just not saying, you know, uh, I'll, I'm going to show you that your girl is ugly. He says, I'm going to show you that thy swan is a crow. I mean, that's an image. You're, he he is, mm-hmm. and it's and as we've talked about in our good writing podcast, if you can speak in images, it's a lot more evocative and a lot more effective than if you just sort of say it straightforward. So whether or not Shakespeare has it front of mind. Um, he's sort of steeped enough in, in, in this world of imagery that, that he's tying all of it together. It was like Tolkien and taking Beowulf and mm-hmm. making The Hobbit, right? He didn't do it intentionally, but mm-hmm. he was so steeped in the story that dragons and kings and thieves all sort of came mm-hmm. out when he wrote The Hobbit. And there, there are two images I've talked about in previous podcasts from Homer. One of them is the 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 bush the olive bush from the half domesticated half from the odyssey and that since that bush is an impossible bush it's very clear that he's making some sort of symbol there mm-hmm. right and he spends a good half a page talking about it when really it's just a bush that mm-hmm. is so odd that it makes sense it would be some sort of symbol the other symbol i talk about is from the iliad book 22 and that's when hector and achilles are is are fighting and hector is wearing achilles's old armor and it appears to be a fight between Achilles in his new glorious self and his old self and the life he could have had. That one, because not that much time is spent upon it, he only mentions the armor in passing. The armor is set up way earlier. I am inclined to think that it is, it's possible that it was not intentional, that it was a mistake, and that it's just a convenient, happy accident that it happens to draw together all the themes of the book. Mm-hmm. And that's fine, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's possible that it's not intentional at all. And when I teach it to my students, I say, I'm kind of extrapolating here, right? I'm drawing out some symbolism, but these themes that are there in the book do happen to come to a head right in this fight. He could have intended it. It could be a happy accident. Either way, it's a nice microcosm of the book. And so I'm careful to say that this isn't, you know, not, not to say that the author has absolutely put this in there when in the case of the olive bush, right? Homer did that on purpose. Mm -hmm. That one's not an accident. Um, I'm also convinced that good authors give you kind of interpretive tools or give you hints as to how to how to understand this. So, yeah. I mean, I think, for example, putting putting um, Pentecost in there is um, maybe not deliberate, but it's it it since you knew you wouldn't the readers would know what Pentecost Pentecost is tongues of fire coming down and converting people. Right. I mean, that is kind of like a, when you put those pieces together, it's a little on the nose. You're like, oh, well, that's what Romeo's doing. And it gives you this sort of interpretive tool. There's another one that I like thinking that, that I use as, a, as an example. In the Gospel of Mark, um, there's this story where um, um, Jesus goes and he heals this blind man and he spits on dirt or he, he touches him and the blind man and Jesus is like, can you see anything? And the blind man says, uh, 
I kind of see people, but they look like trees and everything's really fuzzy and, and they look like moving trees. And then Jesus goes, oh, okay. And he spits in some dirt and rubs it in his eyes. And he's like, now what do you see? And he's like, oh, I can see people now. It's this weird thing. How, why does Jesus have a miracle that he like... He takes two cracks at he it. He only has to take two cracks at it. Like, why does the Son of God kind of make make a, like, not actually fully heal the guy the first way around? Is he just not powerful? But that's playing into an interpretation. That's playing into how you can read the entire Gospel of Mark. The whole story of the Gospel of Mark is you have all these characters saying, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? Uh, who is he? Is he is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Um, at one point... Um, um, Peter's like, I think you're the Christ. And Jesus says, yeah, good job. And then he's like, and as the Christ, you're going to defeat Rome and become king. And Jesus is like, no, that's not it. <laughs> Almost so had it there. You buddy. have all of these characters who are seeing Jesus only like, like fuzzy. Like they're seeing Jesus, but not really who he is. They're seeing like moving trees as opposed to, as opposed to who Jesus is. And then it's at the end, um, the, there's a character who finally sees Jesus for who he is, and he says, truly that is a son of God. And it's the Roman centurion looking at Christ on the cross as he's dying. So you have this weird little story about Jesus not perfectly healing somebody. Is it just this weird story for no reason? No, it's actually giving you an interpretive tool to understand the, re- the whole of the gospel. Um, so something that I try to do whenever I read um, Shakespeare or I read books that have that you can clearly identify motifs is to look for those little scenes where it seems like something innocuous is going on or it seems like a little weird phrase is happening. Oftentimes it's in Shakespeare, it's when minor characters are talking to each other and it seems like they're just filling dead space. But every so often they'll say something um, or they'll make some sort of reference to something and more often than not, it actually fits into the motif of the story or it fits into this overarching symbol thing. I'll be talking about Julius Caesar in my next one. And there's, mm-hmm. there's an instance of that. Yeah. So if you're curious, so we're not going to talk about the rest of this, but in, in the second half of Romeo and Juliet, the sort of star conversion heavenly body motif fades away. And the new one that comes in is poisons and medicines. And Father Lawrence says, I can make medicines. I can combine these two elements, Romeo and Juliet, and turn them into a medicine that heals the feuds. And then he has this big, long motif about the mixing of Romeo and Juliet becoming this healing medicine. But he has to, but like with medicines, you got to crush the ingredients to, to have it work. Romeo and Juliet have to die. Then the families are healed. Anyway, but that motif of medicine and of misapplying medicine comes up a lot in the second half of Romeo and Juliet. And I haven't done all the, the legwork to like sit down and really do it as much, to formalize it as much as I have with the first half of Romeo and Juliet. Um, but as a teacher, this means that every time I read the book, I have something to do, right. as opposed to just be super bored that I'm you know, teaching the book, and I don't have to teach it the same way every year, every year, every year. I can keep finding new things. Um, and every so often, some student will say something, and five or six pieces will click into place, and I'll be like, you're brilliant. And they'll be like, <laughs> I, I am? Why? <laughs> and then you know, I'll, I'll explain these things. But yes, so glad, AJ, I'm glad that we're not at all, completely at I've always, I've always known it, and oh. I think that... <laughs> Some of these things are, they, they're what separates a, what we would consider a good book from a bad one, yeah. right? Shakespeare is good because he can do this. He can have these motifs that are sliding in and out. And he not only does that, but has them phrased in a memorable and touching way. 
he puts them well, and then on subsequent readings, you can always find something new. Yeah. This, as contrasted with you know your favorite popular fiction of the time, and there and there are many, and I'm I'm not saying that they're not worth a read. Like say, take Hunger Games or. But you read them differently. You yeah, you read them differently, right? Hunger Games is brain candy. It's a rainy it's for day. Entertainment. It's, it's yep. for entertainment. It's for fun. And on subsequent readings, you're probably not going to find much more. Yep. And the symbols are overt and really trumpeted if they're there. And there's not there's not much to find mm-hmm. on reading it again, other than like another few hours of entertainment. And that's that's okay. I'm not saying those books are are not for people. It's just a different kind of experience. We'll t- we'll talk about reading books in a couple podcasts, but um, that's one of the big differences that. I think in books for entertainment, you'll often find that the plot is the main point of the book, but all the stuff that Graham is talking about right now is like the construction of the of the play itself, not just the plot that's happening. Yeah, that's, it's, yeah, it's not the plot; it's yeah. it's this background thing. But so you can do this badly. Yes, and I think yeah, an example really of doing this badly is when you put a, when you put one reference to an image, but nothing else in the story has been building up to that or nothing else connects with that. So let's say you take a super a Superman movie and you have Superman beating up bad guys and doing all sorts of things and then at one instance you have a very clear image where you make Superman sort of look like Jesus. Like his arms are out and he looks like Christ crucified on the cross descending or whatever. Um, but there's no other symbolism or iconography or any other thing. There's no to, real self-sacrifice. There's no real he self-sacrifice. He hasn't got followers. There's no yeah. like promises. There's no real leadership. He's just sort of fighting bad guys, and then all of a sudden there's a Jesus symbol. Or if you don't understand the gospel and think that like Jesus wins because he's like buff, mm. right? As opposed to Jesus wins because he dies. Um, like if you just sort of throw an, a symbol in there, that's when it gets super cringy and and... Um, maybe you think you're being clever, but it's just one little icon, one little iconography in there that has no relation to the rest of the story. And there, there are some authors that have written about this, and there are different schools, right? Dante wrote with the four levels of interpretation of it in mind, and we've talked about that in a previous podcast, previous podcast. Whereas Ray Bradbury says, I try not to think about the symbols. I try not to do that overtly because it always comes out overwrought. I just keep my mind well supplied with imagery and symbols. And then my subconscious my subconscious does the tricks for me when I write. I don't actually have to think about it. And I don't know. Maybe Ray Bradbury's writing, there are some symbols in there, but I'd say that they're not as planned and intentional as those in Shakespeare or Dante. C.S. Lewis, <coughs> C.S. Lewis worried of people, of, of sort of this growing trend towards stories emanating from the internal mind of the authors as opposed to stories that tied in this shared um, symbolic landscape. So Shakespeare is not making these things up himself. He is using these things that are <coughs> well known and he's, and he's artfully rendering them into his story. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis, when, he's, when he writes about the Middle Ages, he gets nervous or he, he thinks that like we've made this shift into individualizing everything where what we think is artful is somebody who invents everything whole cloth, brand new, and has absolutely no ties into anything else. Um, and um, it's, um, it's very much playing into modern individualism mm-hmm. and relativism and you know you define your own world and what really is matters about art is not the common narrative, but mm-hmm. an individual narrative. So, I mean, Bradbury can say, oh, I don't care about symbols, I'm just gonna tell my cool story. And I, that, that's fine, but my, my, my guess is that 
um, probably C.S. Lewis wouldn't like it. I'm not saying that that's the, that should be the, the litmus test of what we think is good or bad, but I'm just saying that Bradbury, in that phrase by saying, I don't worry about symbols, I'm just worrying about story, is making a very modern storyteller. He's taking a very modern storyteller stance on what makes compelling literature. But I think young writers trying to pay too much attention to the symbols can make for some pretty painful reading. That's fine, but I think you need to, young writers need to make some painful reading so they can make better oh. things later. Mm. Sure. That's cool. I think they should try it. I think they should try to do it even if they do it badly because they're never, otherwise, all they're going to do is, is have everybody say, you need to invent everything it's itself. It needs to be its own, its own thing. Don't borrow because that's somehow, I don't know, uh, disingenuous. I don't think that's true. Oh man, borrowing. So fun. You're just playing into my next podcast. <laughs> you are put Anyway, you know, it's like you're the perfect just, setup. Yeah, this is setting me up. Cool. Anything else, Grant? Just that the, um, some of the, the real meat and potatoes of English literature um, study is to try to find compelling readings that tie in these motifs. Yep. And if you are a teacher or if you are a student and you're just making up stuff and you're like, well, the boots are a symbol of his angst. Like, prove it, buddy. You know, like, then that's what essays, that's what should populate essays is, is giving an interpretation as to why the symbol should be taken seriously as a symbol. Not all essays have to be j- no, no, just concerning mean, the yeah, symbols, yeah. but those concerning symbolism mm-hmm. and motifs and theme need to, like, you need to actually do the legwork. Yeah. It can't just be like, well, I subjectively feel that, like, the candle is a symbol of his Intelligence, or even Maybe. worse, the fr- their friendship is a symbol of friendship. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's an example of friendship. <laughs> it like is a friendship. Yes. We get, what, we get, get those get? those yeah. essays from time to time. The friendship between uh, Enkaidu and Gilgamesh is a symbol of friendship. And I have to talk to my students. If you can say is an example of or is an instance of, it is not a symbol. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what it is. It's an example. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, and this was, it was kind of a throwaway thought, but the, your comment that motifs change throughout the work I also find very interesting because I would want to apply the same tool across the entire play. But what you said is that this Pentecost theme kind of ends and then goes into a new yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, there's one little later example when Juliet is waiting for Romeo to come back and she says, I want the sun to set so that Romeo comes because Romeo comes at night. Um, and she's And so she's like wishing the sun away, but she's the sun and he's the now the moon and anyway it's, but it kind of fizzles out right and then it's taken up with this poison medicine uh, motif that goes on um yeah so get your books go start looking for motifs um and this can't really happen on the first reading right um i try to do it whenever i read a book for the first time and it never works because you just don't know what's coming next like i just recently read jane eyre for the first time and through the whole book i was trying to look for a motif i was trying to like get my head into to see if there's some sort of overarching thing going on and I feel like there is but I don't know what it is anyway and so I feel like first reading is for impressions exactly right you read once you get what you can but a good book needs a second reading mm-hmm. right? I just finished uh, Boethius and you, mm-hmm. you guys have finished it a while ago mm-hmm. I don't feel like I got everything on reading one and mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to read it again because I need to. I've taught great expectations for six years <laughs> and I think I'm finally at the point where I can say I don't like it I don't really, I mean, like, I don't think it's amazing. It's, it's a good, it's good. It's a fun little story, but I don't think it's like great. I don't think there's, there's anyway. One of us. One of <laughs> yeah, us. I, mean, just, I am not a fan of great expectations. Oh, Pip's kind of a drip. Stop, stop teaching it. Yeah, we probably will. Okay. <laughs> great. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. Uh, do we have anything for Classical Stuff We Got Wrong? Yeah, we have a couple. Let me pull up the emails we received. So one of them was concerning Beowulf, and it wasn't necessarily stuff we got wrong. It was just commentary on translation, right? There's kind of a sliding scale in translation between word for word and thought for thought. Yeah, that was from a guy named Schuyler in, I think it's New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of, that's a helpful little phrase. We were talking about our translation and to say that you can translate word for word or you can translate sort of idea for idea. Right. And just, and and when translations fall in between those two poles. Yep. And what I like about that comment is that it, I think lines up exactly with what the episode was about in that even if you get an original text and even if you're translating that original text, you make a choice of how you translate that text. And so even as even if you were to go to original text, bring it into English, you would still want to read someone else's translation. If you do word for word, you would benefit from a thought for thought. But that's in the same way that us reading English translations would benefit from reading thought for thought or word for word. Um, so nothing changes whether you are reading that original text. That's, that's all I'm getting at there. He also suggested a couple of things. So one, an expansion on my reading of Record of Mead Benches as mm. meaning a king dispelling competing powers by denying them their places to drink, right? If I'm, if I'm killing lots of dudes, it means that I am rising to power by denying kings their ability to, you know, give, give drink and gold to their fellas. And honestly, I think that's a great reading. And that's kind of what I intended to say in the first place. I probably just didn't say it quite right. It's not just killing random folks. It is being master of your domain and of those around your domain. And the last thing was saying that I, I kind of land on the Beowulf as a, just a classical story of good and evil and something to emulate. And he suggested that it was a story illustrating that men who put too much trust in their ancestral blades and physical prowess are going to fail, whereas those who trust God are going to do better. And I think that's, I, I can see where the reading comes from and I agree with it to an extent, but I'm leery of bring my modern desire for an overarching theme to some ancient literature. I'm not sure that not all of it would have to be there, including the poetry of Beowulf. You have to go and see if the motif, if you can give there it a Exactly. It. There are, I would say there are two or three instances where I can say that this motif pops up. I'm not sure that's enough for me to say that I think it's a firm, concrete, yes, this is what the story's about. But I think it's interesting, and I'm going to look at it next time I read through. But um, it's a great, thoughtful email. Yeah. Um, can we? Do you want to hold off on the rest for future episodes? Because sure. Think, yeah. yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so, thank you for listening. We are at classicalstuff.net. You can also follow us on Twitter at c l s s c a l stuff, classical stuff, and it's been great. If you love the episode, uh, we would love a review. I think it'd be really cool. But and share it with a friend. Yeah. Oh, sorry if it's been a little fuzzy. It's raining here where mm. we are, and you can hear it. And we've we're you know transitioning to a new building, so we've been moving around our recording areas. So if the audio changes as we move place to place, you know, don't be alarmed. It'll be good when we finally finally settle. Perfect. Well, all right. For Graham, AJ, and for me, Thomas, this has been classical stuff. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.